come on a journey with a cinephile. Welcome, everyone, to episode number 29 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr., recording out of Columbus, Ohio. And here on episode number 29, we have Journey through the Aughts number 5, where I'm going to have featured reviews of Dr. Cyclops from 1940 and We Summon the Darkness that is getting its 2020 release. And I also have quite a few mini-reviews for you with things including Sleepwalkers, Girls' Night Out, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1955, A Chinese Ghost Story, the remake from 2011. I watched both Grave Encounters 1 and 2, and I also have watched Wes Craven's Cursed. Now, what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I get you over to those mini-reviews. Enjoy. Yeah. 
and welcome back from that musical break. Now to get into the mini reviews, the first film that I'm going to cover is going to be Sleepwalkers from 1992. This was directed by Mick Garris and this is written by Stephen King, which I also believe I read that this is the first screenplay that he wrote that wasn't adapted from one of his previous works. This stars Brian Cross, Medchin Amick, and Alice Krieg. This is a horror film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.3 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being, A mother and son team of strange supernatural creatures move to a small town to seek out a young virgin to feed on. Now, some of the things that I really just dug about this is I love that King based this in mythology. The Egyptians worshipped cats like they were gods, and it almost started making me think as I was going through my review of it that it makes me wonder if the Sphinx is maybe like a shapeshifter, and that there's a possibility that these creatures actually existed, or at least the Egyptians thought it did. And then we also get to see a bunch of different books, carvings, and pictures and whatnot from the past of cat-like creatures so i just love that he did so well in basing this in something like that where it does make you wonder now to kind of go to the mother and son team of these supernatural creatures at the synopsis states they have an incestuous relationship but it's kind of hard to really classify that in a human terms because they are creatures so and they don't really know if they are the only ones left of their kind and there's actually a great thing as the son is charles brady who is Krauss. What I like about him here is that he tells a story in class and it really makes you kind of feel for him because he's lonely and it's just him and his mother and they have to do some horrible things in order to survive. And I think that just does well, but then the problem ends up becoming is there's this odd tonal shift into a supernatural slasher after Charles tries to rape Tanya Robertson, who is Madchen Amick. I just don't think that we, this whole time in the movie, are kind of feeling sorry for him, even when he has to kill his teacher, who is played by Glenn Shaddix, and then that happens where he just becomes a villain, and I don't think it works there, and I think it would have been better suited to still make him be a sympathetic character, because when he's talking to his mother, who keeps yelling at him, he doesn't want to actually do it, and then you make him into this villain, and I just don't think it works for me. But I do think that... Mary Brady, who is Alice Creek, she does a phenomenal job. And I think Madchen is just adorable. And I feel sorry for what happens to her because it just seems like it really just kind of destroys everything that she was thinking about. And we do get some great cameos in this movie as there's Ron Perlman who plays Captain Soames from the Indiana State Troopers. We have Lineman Ward who plays Tanya's father. We get... Cynthia Garris, who I believe is Mick Garris's mother, is in this film. Cindy Pickett plays Tanya's mother. She's a great character actress that you see a lot. And then from that, we get a lot of horror regulars and horror legends. We have John Stephen King plays the caretaker for the cemetery in the movie. We have John Landis, who is working with the police. Joe Dante, I believe, is one of the first people that King is trying to explain himself to. Clive Barker plays one of the forensic guys. Toby Hooper is in this. Mark Hamill plays a sheriff in Bodega Bay. It's just interesting because Mick Garris has all of these guys as friends, and he's the one that, you know, created the Masters of Horror type thing. So getting them all in this makes sense, and it's also fun to see for those that are in, like, big fans of the genre to get to pick up on that little cameos and kind of like a horror nod for us fans. 
I still, though, that's all I really wanted to kind of delve into with this movie. I think it has some good aspects, but it ultimately just kind of has some slight issues for me with what they kind of go to with some of the things. But I still think this is above average, borderline on good, where some of these changes could have made this go over that hill there. But I came in with a 7.5 on this movie as my rating. And for my second review of this week, it is going to be Girls' Night Out. This is directed by Robert Dubell. This comes from a screenplay that was co-written amongst Gil Spencer Jr., Kevin Kurgis, Joel Bolster, and Anthony N. Jervis. And this is also based on a story from Gil Spencer Jr., Kevin Kurgis, and Joel Bolster as well. This stars Julia Montgomery, James Carroll, and Suzanne Barnes. This is a horror mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 2.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a killer wearing a dancing bear suit stalks a variety of cheerleaders during an all-night scavenger hunt at a remote Ohio college. Now, the first time I ever heard about this, I'm pretty sure that it was from the ABCs of Hidden Horror podcast, which if you haven't listened to that, I highly recommend it because Brian Sammons, Jamie Sammons, and Dave Z are all phenomenal. And they've really given me some that I've never heard of type films. So that is where I figured this one out and then added it of, of films to check out on a list. And this one didn't really ring a bell and the poster didn't stand out either. So I do feel like it kind of must have fallen into obscurity. I mean, I was born in 87, so this came out, you know, three years before I was born it was made five years before that but i end up watching this on youtube as i couldn't really find a copy anywhere else to check out now this one though we start off in a sanitarium where we hear about a guy named kavanaugh who ends up killing himself and then we shift over to dewitt university now what really strikes me about this movie is that it plays it's at a college and it plays more like a giallo than it does a slasher film and I kind of come to this conclusion just for the fact that we get a black glove killer, which you get in both of these type of movies. But this is really kind of a whodunit of trying to figure out who the killer is. And we're given a bunch of good red herrings. But on top of that, we have Mac, who is the local security guard portrayed by Hal Holbrook. As he's the one that is doing the investigation now, he's kind of like a cop, but he is a security guard. But he's also working with the local radio host, like the radio DJ of... Charlie Kaiser, who is Larry Mintz, as he is the one who reveals that he's getting weird phone calls. So he's also helping with this investigation before the actual police get called in. And that feels more like a giallo than it does a slasher for me. And on top of that, like I said, we get a bunch of good red herrings where there's a bunch of the guys in this that are have pretty good reasonings behind if they were the killer as to why they're doing it, which I did like, even though I do have to admit the reveal was spoiled for me on IMDb, so don't go on there before you watch it, as there is a character name that gives a whole lot away, and I kind of wish I wouldn't have seen that now, but it doesn't ruin it for me, and I will tell you that for me it ended up kind of like when you watch a Giallo for the first time and you know who the killer is, and then you go back to watch it a second time, that's kind of where I was with watching it this time around, even though this is, you know, obviously the first time I've seen it. But I do have to say is that we do get a great outfit for the killer. I think this bear costume is pretty funny. And it doesn't look great, but then I start to realize that Penn State's Nittany Lion or Stanford's tree costume don't look much better and those are real so i'm a little bit forgiving there but i do love that having the killer in this bear costume they make this great weapon where they take steak knives that are have serrated edges 
and then makes almost claws with them. The problem though is that most of the deaths are done off screen and it makes it kind of boring to have it like that. The story is good though, as the killer reveal is given through little subtle hints throughout the movie and i love with what they do with the killer in making these different images or anything like that or the little subtle hints that are dropped i do have to say that there's a lot of problematic characters in this movie though and it really does kind of embody the whole bro culture type thing that we get here as Teddy, one of our main characters, is supposed to be this good guy, but we literally see him cheating on his girlfriend, who looks to be pretty amazing from everything that we get in this movie. We get actress that I've seen quite a bit growing up in Ratanya Alda. She doesn't have a major role in this, but I thought she was fine here. We get David Holbrook, as well as Julia Montgomery in their introductory films. Even though I do feel like this technically is Julia's first film, but I think she might have done another one before this officially got its release. But it still technically would be, you know, introducing her as well. Going back to David Holdbrook, I think the reason he's in this one is that they have his dad in the movie as well. So I don't know if they were able to get Hal because they had to put David in this or what they did there. It is also interesting that from the ABC's podcast i heard that hal holbrook did all of his scenes in one day and they're spliced together as as i was watching this i remembered back to that and he never really has any characters in the scenes with him they're just cutting away to make it look like he is interacting with people and his performance kind of feels like it as well if i'm going to be honest even though i am a holbrook fan in general but those are all really the things i kind of wanted to delve into this i think that a few tweaks this could have been much better than what we got as there are some really good aspects they just don't go far enough with them so my rating here is going to be a 6 out of 10 and then up next I have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1955 now it should be pointed out here that this is actually technically a part of a TV series that was called Climax that was hosted by William Ludigan this was a show that ran from 1954 to 1958. This was episode number 34 of season one, where these would run about an hour, and it looks like they're almost more like TV movies that they would show each week. So this one for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was directed by Alan Reisner. This is from an adaptation by Gore Vidal, and it is from the Robert Louis Stevenson novel. It stars Michael Rennie, Cedric Hardwick, and Mary Sinclair. This is listed just as a drama, but I feel like this also would technically be horror and sci-fi with the subject matter. This was from the United States, it looks like. And it is currently rated as a 6.6 .6 on IMDb. And because it is a TV show, technically, it is not listed on Letterboxd. And then there's not really much of a synopsis. It just states a little-known adaptation of the Robert Louis Stevenson classic. And just to kind of get into this, this was a version that I'm not even sure how I came in contact or found a copy of it. But it's, I've had it for close to a decade and finally decided to give it a viewing as I was working through some of the movies that I have been owning but haven't seen yet. And I was pretty excited when I saw that Michael Rennie and Cedric Hardwick both starred in this as they're actors that I'm pretty familiar with. And then something I kind of forgot to state about this show is it looks like they would do a bunch of different TV movies like this, and they would focus a lot of it being on the actors that they would cast in it and try to do it more character and story-driven. And that's where we get here that Michael Rennie is Dr. Jekyll as well as Mr. Hyde with Hardwick being Mr. Utterson. To go a little bit even farther with that, though, 
these do kind of feel almost like stage play adaptations. A little bit more grand to that because we do get to see what is supposed to be outdoor London at one point as well. But like I'm saying is that they're really just trying to drive the acting as the main selling point with that. Now we come in at the end of this and we learn that we are going to learn the story through Utterson. As they come in to Dr. Jekyll's laboratory, find Mr. Hyde, they shoot him in what they think is self-defense, and then Utterson finds a note on a journal stating that if Dr. Jekyll disappears or is found dead, that he needs to read that. Now, Dr. Jekyll is searching for the soul through science, so this isn't anything that we anything new here technically as we've seen this in some of the previous adaptations and the more i think about it the more i do think that is in the novel is what dr jekyll is doing now this upsets dr lanyard who in this is portrayed by lowell gilmore as he feels like this is jekyll trying to play god and wants him to be punished when he learns the truth of what is happening because mr hyde goes on a pretty prolific criminal spree here and it's all over the papers and everybody seems to know who he is now, the effects in this one aren't as good as some of the previous transformations, though, as it really just gives a wavy sort of screen. And then they, I'm believing, is are taking different pictures of the different stages of the makeup and just kind of transitioning them through until we get the final product. But we do get to see it go from Hyde to Jekyll and then in another scene where it's back the other way. And it's actually in front of people, so they get to actually see the truth as it happens in front of them. Not horrible, though. I do think the prosthetics they use to make Jekyll and Hyde look different is good. They give Hyde a unibrow and then they put these things on Michael Rennie's face as his face is pretty gaunt to begin with, but when he's hide, it is much fuller. And then it also gives him kind of some shadowy look, which I'm assuming is done with makeup. And I will say this does have a pretty solid soundtrack to it as well. Nothing great that I would listen to uh, by myself or anything like that, but it is something that I noticed a few different times that gave it a more dark, eerie feel, especially when we're seeing things that Hyde is doing. So, as I said, this isn't a great version of it. I do think they do some good things with it. Really is character-driven, and I think a lot of that is resting on the shoulders of how good Rennie and Hardwick are. But I still have to kind of rate this as, you know, just above average compared to some of the ones I've seen that came out before this and some of the ones that I've seen after. So I'm going to come in with my rating here being a 6 out of 10. And then for my next movie, I have a Chinese ghost story from 2011. This is actually a remake of a movie with the same title from 1987. This one is directed by Wilson Yip. It is written by Tan Chuang. It stars Louis Ko, Yifi Liu, and Shokun Yu, which if I butchered any of those names, I do apologize. This is a fantasy horror film from China and Hong Kong. This is currently sitting on a 5.6 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis that was on IMDb is a little bit lengthy, so I altered it a bit to a tax collector, Ning, is a clumsy and easily frightened man, and he decides to help a village with their water issues by going up a nearby mountain. When he and his crew decide to stay in what they think is an abandoned temple, they discover a supernatural evil. Now, this is a film that I obtained when I was trying to get the original one. I decided since I had already had it, to go ahead and you know check it out eventually which i just did and i ended up digging the original and i believe at the time of writing this as well as recording this audio it's roughly been about a year since my initial viewing of that one and like i said they're both pretty fun but i will say that this is pretty much a shot for shot remake of that original one they've just done some updated things with some of the effects and whatnot now and i also want to say that if i credit some wrong characters to anything that i say after this point i do apologize 
the I tried to take notes while watching it, and the subtitle names are a little bit different from what is listed on IMDb. So I just kind of wanted, like I said, to kind of go ahead and throw that out there. But just to give a little bit more background on this, we have a demon hunter who is Yang Chizi, who is Ko, and he falls in love with a demon that he was supposed to kill by the name of Ni Egjio Kwan, who is portrayed by Li Fi Lu. And it turns out to be a test from a master demon hunter of Ha Suet Fun Lu, who is Si Wong Fan, as they're trying to destroy a tree demon who is Kara Wait. Because of Yan's delay, Han loses an arm in the process, but the demon is banished, but does threaten to return and puts a curse. Now this then shifts into the future where we have Ning, who is Shokuan Yu. As he makes his way through the wilderness, he comes up to a well and tries to take some water, but is taking prisoners they think he's trying to steal. And they end up realizing that he's from the capital and decide to ask him to help out, which is how he encounters the same demon that Yan fell in love with earlier. And then this is also the tree demon needs him as well to get released is what I've kind of gathered from the story. Now, I did pretty much like this one as well, even though, like I said, it is a shot for shot remake and I'm not always the biggest fan of doing that. I'm not really familiar with the lore outside of seeing both versions of this movie, but I did find it to be pretty interesting. I like how that in this, the demons don't necessarily take on the horrific form that we're used to here in the Western world. Now, they do have that underlying in it, and we do get to see that with a little bit of like a spirit thing when some of them are killed. So I did like think that was cool. Now, we do also have some bit of a social commentary going on here, which I did like. It starts off in the past where that demon hunter falls in love with a demon, and I almost feel like this is kind of like poor people getting married to those outside of their means like you get in like Romeo and Juliet or just something where you have a group of people who are not supposed to marry another one and this could also even be taken as race if you actually think about it as it's still quite relevant today and it does also work for me to kind of see this play out in you know a more supernatural sense here and I also like this film doesn't have the happiest ending with it and as well I will say though this version is shot beautifully there are some fun and wild fight scenes. I'm not the biggest fan of fighting with on the wires and everything. We have people flying around. I know that's a very popular genre. I actually respect what they're doing there. It's just not something I necessarily like to watch and don't necessarily enjoy it a whole lot. And then as I said, this one does go a lot more CGI. And I don't really mind that either here, even though normally you hear me talking about how CGI ruins things. A lot of times they're just using it to enhance certain things like we do get something with the demon's eyes at different times here some of the fight scenes are used for it when a demon gets killed you get to see like almost a ghostly entity coming out of them thought all that worked for me now there is at the final fight scene with the tree demon and i know they have a lot of things with hair in eastern cultures and we do get some of that here where they're the demon is using its hair to fight people I thought that kind of looked cheesy at times, and there's also this tiny little white fox that I thought was adorable. There was a few moments of the CGI where I could clearly tell that it wasn't real, but I mean, none of this stuff actually ruins the movie. It's just something that sticks out to me, and I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of. And I also thought that the acting in this movie was pretty solid as well. I think that some of the characters, especially with... Koo, I thought he really embodies this character who fall who has fallen in love and then when he realizes that it's not going to work out for him becomes kind of a bitter man and I thought that was good. Uh, Lou is actually interesting and she's been in stuff like Disney's live action Mulan and has been pretty popular actress from China it seems like. 
I thought she does really well as a demon that's supposed to be enticing men, but then she ends up encountering you, who I thought he embodies this bumbling type guy pretty well, to the point where I'm almost wondering if that's how he could be in like real life. But there's also kind of a duality there where he plays this innocent character where where Ni really wants to be with Ning, but they just really can't because of the forbiddenness. And then I also thought Carol Wai as the tree demon was really good, while everybody else kind of just rounded it out for what was needed. But I actually kind of rate this to be very on par with the original one in my eyes. And so I came in with a 7 out of 10 with this film. And then I have for you a first time viewing of Grave Encounters from 2011. This is directed by the Vicious Brothers, who are Colin Minihan and Stuart Ortiz. They also co-wrote this together. This stars Ben Wilkinson, Sean Rogerson, and Ashley Girzoko. This is a horror film from Canada. This is sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being... For their ghost hunting reality show, a production crew locks themselves inside of an abandoned mental hospital that's supposedly haunted, and it might prove to be all too true. Now, this is a movie that I actually remember seeing on the shelves when I worked at Family Video. I'll admit, I was one of those people that when I saw it there, I figured it would be something that was cheesy and never watched it. When I got into listening to podcasts, I kept hearing people talk highly of this movie, and I even had some people that I know in real life who aren't even the biggest horror fans actually recommend this movie to me. Finally saw this with Jamie when we had a mutual day off. I wanted to at least watch a movie that night, and we decided on this one, even though movies like this terrify her, so I do give mad props and a shout out to her. And something I just wanted to give this to start off with is that we're seeing this Jerry Hartfield, who is Ben Wilkinson. He relays to us that this is a reality ghost hunting show called Grave Encounters. The footage was sent to Jerry, and he's informing us that this isn't a movie and that everything that we see here really happened. And I believe he also says this was sent to him, and he's not really necessarily sure who did that, but that he does have the footage, and that is where he is showing this from. Now, I love the found footage aspect and mocking those ghost hunter shows. I haven't really watched many of them, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. I do know I used to watch the one that was on MTV back in the day. I'm drawing a blank right now on what the name of that one was. But I did think that one was really interesting. And I've seen clips here and there. And I used to watch a haunting that was more of a documentary style of recounting what people claim happened to them. But aside from that, I do like that this points out the fact that those shows are pretty much fake for the most part as the director of this who is lance preston who is portrayed by sean rogerson is actually paying a gardener to make up a story and then we also get a fake medium who is houston gray who is portrayed by mackenzie gray and we realize that he's actually an actor he's not really the psychic medium that he's pretending to be but I do think we get a solid build up here where the scares are subtle to start off with. And then it gets crazier and crazier the longer that they're in this place. And the goal is to spend eight hours here recording a bunch of footage and then hopefully get enough where they can edit this together as an episode. As this is supposed to be the sixth one of their show. Now later, or about the midway point of the movie, we start to get this thing where they're playing with time. Which I thought was interesting. And they even are trying to escape from the place. But no matter what exits they go to... They're just either missing or there's another hallway or just something creepy is happening there, which I thought was kind of a cool thing to play with. We also get some really good callbacks to things that we see earlier in the movie, and then they have some some sort of way to play back in later to it, which I thought was really good as well. I thought the acting was pretty believable for being a found footage film, as nobody necessarily stands out, but they do feel quite natural. 
And I almost honestly believe that this is a group of people trying to make this show and something real ends up happening to them. Now, I will admit, I thought at first that the effects were going to be cheesy, but they're actually really good. I'm assuming most of this is done by CGI, but it is so seamless and using the found footage angle where it almost gives it kind of a grainier look to it does work as well. I don't mind the distortions that we get with the footage as anytime like something as ghostly as nearby, it does do that. It does become more problematic, but I feel this is one of an earlier ghost type films that are doing it. And now I feel like it's overplayed for ones that have come out after this. But I will admit, like I said, I don't really care for it now. But at the time, this does seem to work here. And I also like there is no soundtrack to this. And I did read some trivia online that this was done to be more in the vein of Cloverfield to make it feel more real as we're actually just getting the actual sounds of this place. And they do really well with, as it goes on though, having more creepy music as, or not creepy music, but creepy sounds to help build tension and fear. But I do feel this movie does lose its way a little bit near the end and doesn't really know how to end. There's a callback right around there as well that I feel I wish they would have went a little bit farther with it. But I did kind of get a little bit bored right there near the end. Not enough to ruin the movie, but it is something that I did feel as it was wrapping itself up. But I still think this is a great movie for the found footage, like ghost hunting type subgenre here. And I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And then to follow that up, we actually watched the sequel as well of Grave Encounters 2. This came out in 2012. This is directed by John Poliquin, and it was written by the Vicious Brothers of Stuart Ortiz and Colin Minihan. This one stars Richard Harmon, Dylan Playfair, and Leanne Lapp. This is a horror film from Canada and the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a film student who is obsessed with the movie Grave Encounters, sets out with his friends to visit the psychiatric hospital depicted in the original film. I read the synopsis before actually watching it, and this movie I thought had an interesting idea of where they were going to take it, you know, for a sequel. Now, this movie starts off with giving us a bunch of reviews of the original Grave Encounters, including one from Cool Dude himself of Sean C. Phillips. But the last one that we get is Alex Wright, who is Richard Harmon, our main character. He gives it an unfavorable review. And I just kind of like how this is a meta approach, that the first one was a movie, and that it was pretty up and down with its reviews, which I'm assuming was probably something that really did happen. Now, from this opening scene with Alex's best friend of Trevor Thompson, who is Dylan Playfair, we get to learn that Alex is a pretentious horror fan, but he's not wrong what he's saying about the genre that at the time it was definitely based more on CGI and trying to amp up the scares with jump scares. And we also learn though that Alex is a horror director and he thinks that he's going to kind of revolutionize the genre. Now he starts to get messages from YouTube user of Death Awaits, which I thought was a cool tie back in. And it gives him the latitude and longitude to the hospital from the first film and then starts to help him push him on a investigation into the original film which leads him to different people and kind of doing more research on his own but i like how this all intertwines with info from the first movie and this one actually does what a sequel needs to do in ramping up the scares now the problem though is the cgi for like the ghost and everything is as good as the first one but then they kind of decide to do some things like floating cameras 
and something that happens near the end of the movie with a door i just think that cgi isn't as good and it kind of took me out of the movie if i'm going to be perfectly honest and this one also slows down way more near the ending and i was a little bit bothered by that as i found myself being bored and didn't really kind of care where it was going to go there's a character that's back in this one that I don't mind what they do, but I feel like his performance is uneven, and that did bother me there, to be honest. Where this one, like I said, does do some good things, and I like the setup and everything that they're trying to go for. I just don't necessarily know if it works as well, and I know my rating on this one is quite a bit lower. I still enjoyed it. I think it's another good ghost film where we have an interesting setting along with having, you know, the found footage aspect, which still does work for me and everything. Now this one does have a pretty depressing moment where the characters think they might have found safety and what happens to them is pretty disheartening. It also plays more with, not so much with time in this one, but it also, it does play with that this dimension isn't necessarily the same thing and they kind of explain that a little bit more. I also just think they kind of bring back another character here as well that they just don't really flesh out enough of it and I'm not as on board as I really kind of wanted to be. So that's all I really kind of wanted to delve into for this sequel here and my rating on this one is going to be a 6.5 out of 10. And then my last movie for this week is going to be Cursed from 2005. This is directed by Wes Craven, it is written by Kevin Williamson, it stars Christina Ricci, Jesse Eisenberg and Portia D. Rossi. This is a comedy horror film from the United States and Germany. This is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a werewolf loose in Los Angeles changes the lives of three young adults who, after being mauled by the beast, learn they must kill it in order to avoid becoming werewolves themselves. Now, this is a movie that I first saw when I was in college and had no idea that it had came out the same year that I graduated from high school. Because I saw it at the very end of college. I'm pretty sure I had one of the movie channels for free, so I just went through and DVR'd everything that was horror and kind of sounded interesting or some things that you know I hadn't seen yet or anything like that. So I was kind of taking advantage there, and then it wasn't until the second viewing for, you know, doing this review here that I realized that it had came out quite a bit earlier than that. And all I knew was that, aside from when I first came into seeing it, was that this was a werewolf movie that was loose in Los Angeles, and I didn't really care for it after that first viewing, as I said. But what we're doing here is we're following Ellie, who is Christina Ricci, as well as her brother, who is Jesse Eisenberg, and his name is Jimmy. And one night they encounter a werewolf, and as I said, it kind of changes everything about them. But this is Craven and Williamson trying to team up to recapture what they did with Scream, which I don't think this is a bad idea for them to try to take this on, you know, doing like a creature feature here, because they do really well at incorporating that meta aspect back into this movie like they did in Scream, where, I mean, they're talking about things like the Wolfman, where... Joshua Jackson is also in this movie as a character named Jake, and he is trying to make a, what I think is a nightclub, and there's going to be some horror elements in there. But they have a wax figure of the Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman. They also have the cane from that movie. And I mean, on top of that, you also have a scene taken right from the Wolfman where Zila, who is Portia de Rossi, is telling Becky, who is Shannon Elizabeth, as well as Jenny, who is Maya, like the singer, about how she sees blood, the moon, and an evil beast. And then they also are incorporating that there's a pentagram that is on the hands of those who are cursed by this. And then we also get some meta aspects of American Werewolf in London as that 
the bar there, the slaughtered lamb has a pentagram on the wall for protection for them. And then there's a scene in the very beginning where the band Bowling for Soup is playing a song called Little Red Riding Hood, which is, of course, there's a wolf that is bothering her. And some even consider it to be a werewolf there as well. And then it also kind of feels a little bit like the movie Wolf with Jack Nicholson as this is enhancing these people who are infected's senses as well as their sex appeal. Because there's quite a few times where it seems like Ellie, who is, I mean, Christina Ricci's pretty gorgeous woman, and they're trying to be like, well, she seems so much more attractive right now, which I kind of don't, I think this is a too good looking of a cast to really kind of not, to not be like, these people are all quite attractive to begin with. So they're trying to play it down a little bit. And that now that they've been changed, that they can have this more sex appeal. I don't necessarily buy it. And kind of talking about the cast, they have a good group of people here. I mean, I think Ricci is a very talented actress. Eisenberg's another one who is like that. I mean, heck, Joshua Jackson can be pretty good at times. We have Milo Ventimiglia. He's not very good in this movie, but a lot of him is how he's written, I think. Uh, we have Judy Greer, who I think is a pretty solid actress as well. There just doesn't feel to be any heart in it, and I don't know if that's the direction or how the things were written, but it just doesn't feel like anybody really is turning in that good of a performance. And then we also have good practical effects, as I was surprised to see Rick Baker's name at the beginning of this movie. His practical werewolf effects are on point up there with like American Werewolf in London or The Howling. The problem is they go too CGI heavy with the werewolves pretty much from that point on. There's a dog one that doesn't look great at all. And then the transformation I'm not a big fan of. And they try to go a little bit heavy on the comedy at times, which also doesn't work. And this movie ultimately just feels boring. But I would be interested in seeing this director's cut that I've heard about. But I really can't recommend this movie. I didn't enjoy it. I... It doesn't really hold up for me, and I was just kind of bored throughout it. So I do have this rated as below average, and I'm coming in with a 4.5 out of 10. And that's all I wanted to do for the reviews. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for my first featured review. crocodile becomes as huge as a prehistoric monster, a rifle as unwieldy as a siege gun, a terrifying black cat whose jaws mean death, a dog looms larger than an elephant, death in the hands of a ruthless monster. What are you going to do? As you and your fellows develop toward normal size, you will again interfere with my work, and that is something which I cannot permit.
welcome back once again. To get to my first featured review for this episode, it is going to be Dr. Cyclops from 1940. This was directed by Ernest B. Schaudesack. This was written by Tom Kilpatrick from an original screenplay. It stars Albert Decker, Thomas Coley, and Janice Logan. This is a adventure drama horror sci-fi film from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 6.4 on IMDb and a 3.1 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a mad scientist working in the South American jungle miniaturizes his colleagues when he feels his megalomania is threatened. Now, I'll be perfectly honest, this was a movie that I had never heard of until I decided for my podcast to do the journey through the aughts, and I'm working my way through 1940, and this movie came up. I was intrigued to see this was a universal film, and the title was quite interesting. Other than that, I came in pretty green. Now, as the synopsis states, we have a laboratory that is in the ruins of an Inca structure, and I believe I read it somewhere in Peru, but I know it's in South America for sure. The scientist working there is Dr. Thorkel who is Albert Decker. His assistant is Dr. Mendoza, who is Paul Fix. Mendoza is glad in thinking that Torkel's experiment has failed, but his colleague reveals that that is not the case. Mendoza wants him to stop what he's doing as he feels Torkel is playing God, but then he ends up killing him in the process. And I do have to say, this was a pretty cool effect as Torkel takes Mendoza and puts his head into whatever he's working on. And then we see that there's a skull that is superimposed onto Mendoza's face as it is glowing because he's using some sort of radioactivity and it's from radium as this is what that is being used there. Now we shift to the United States. We have a Dr. Bullfinch who is Charles Helton as he is summoned to South America by Thorkel. And then we have a Professor Kendall who gives him the recommendation that he should go down and work with Thorkel as he is one of the leading biologists in the world and so is Dr. Bullfinch. So it would be a good thing for them both to work together there. Also summoned is Dr. Mary Robinson who is Janice Logan. As I've kind of already led here, they're both some of the leading minds in their fields. And then together they go to meet with a Bill Stockton who is Thomas Coley. As the Dr. Thorkel requested somebody else who is a mineralogist, but that person is unavailable. And it takes some blackmail, but they do get Stockton to come with them as well. They head down to Peru and encounter a Steve Baker, who is Victor Killian. He, they had purchased some mules to use as it's treacherous to get where they have to go. But it appears that since they had their contract, Baker had bought all of the mules and declines in letting them use them. It takes some convincing, but once he finds out where they're going, his terms that he wants is that he wants to join them as well and join this expedition. The group then arrives at the camp where they meet Pedro, who is Frank Yenconelli. He's a local that is helping Thorkel, who is in the middle of an experiment, but does greet them afterwards. Now, he wants Dr. Bullfinch and Bill to confirm what they see under a microscope. Thorkel's eyes have gotten so bad that he cannot use his microscope anymore. Now, when they relay what they see, he tells the group that is all he needs and that they can return to the United States. This upsets them as they just got there and they literally did what they needed and now he's kind of sending them off on their way. Now, this really upsets Dr. Bullfinch, who refuses to leave, which in turn angers Thorkel that he will not. Now... It should be pointed out from here that Stockton and Baker both realize, looking at some of the ore, that there is radium that is here. On the other side, though, Mary and Dr. Bullfinch end up seeing 
some images that were taken on special film and that's how they realize it. Both groups though try to lie to the other one and it takes Stockton just to point out that they're trying to double cross each other and that the best thing to do would be to work together. So from here they decide to break into Thorkel's lab and to see what he's up to. Pedro is also with them stating that his horse had went missing and that he claims to had seen it miniaturized in the back and they hear him talking to it. Now, Thorkel is outraged when he discovers they've been snooping. It does seem like he's changing his mind though as they confront him, but we see as a much more nefarious plan as he shrinks them all down and is now studying them as an experiment. Now that's where I'm going to leave my recap, but now having watched this movie, I can honestly say I wasn't expecting to get this type of story. I figured with the name that this would be a man's bad scientist type movie. And that makes sense, you know, as we're in the 1940s where we're getting a lot more sci-fi based horror movies. Now we did see a little bit of that in some of the earlier Universal ones, kind of more of the sequels to like Frankenstein and whatnot, as well as like The Invisible Man. But this is where they're really getting into science even more, and we're moving more into that atomic age. We weren't there full-blown as of yet, but we are starting to see them kind of leaning more in that way. What I also found interesting while watching this was that I really think they're borrowing heavy from the Odyssey. As this really feels like when Odysseus and his men encounter the Cyclops, and it's really fitting that that's the same title of this movie, which made me correlate it even more. Now, we do get a couple of scenes that are eerily similar to what happens in that myth with those one-eyed creature, and during the climax of this, Thorkel really can only see out of one eye, as his sight is so bad and one side of his glasses break. I will give credit for using that if that is kind of the baseline that they were going for, as I find it intriguing to kind of take something like that and then modernize it as much as they do here. I did find it interesting that this takes place in South America. The reason being, there was a deposit of radium that was found there. I'm assuming this something that's supposed to be quite rare back in this time. And so what I'm assuming is that kind of like how we go to other countries all the time to steal their natural resources, that's what we are getting here. And I also like it though is it also gets them where they're quite isolated being in a country like this and they have to have a treacherous pathway especially when they get shrunken down as it would be even more difficult to try to escape in that case. Now Mendoza and Thorkel started working there but when of course he wanted to get shut down Thorkel ends up killing his partner. It really works for me with some of the things that these people are doing to stay alive when they are miniature. The reason that's that Bill is a mineralogist, Mary and Bullfinch are both doctors. I think she might be an engineer, or at least somebody is here, if memory serves. Then you also have Steve as a miner. When we see these people who are all highly intelligent, or at least experts in their specific field, it makes sense some of the things that they're doing, because for me, logically, I can see these people doing some of the things that they are, where you just don't have regular people who are thinking up something pretty crazy to do in order to survive. It's possible, but more unlikely. Now, what really surprised me here, though, is the movie is pretty vicious for the era. A couple of these characters are killed, which I wasn't expecting. We also get an interesting dynamic here where we have a cat and dog who are living in this camp. The cat is painted as a villain here, which I'm not surprised by, when we realize that it is eating some of the tiny animals that were experiments. It does come after the humans, but I think this is more of to ramp up the tension for the group being small, and you're also kind of playing on that dynamic where something as harmless as a cat for us as like normal-sized humans would be quite dangerous once we are miniature. 
The dog, on the other hand, does respond to Pedro, and I feel like this is trying to point out the fact that even in his smaller state, he's still man's best friend and recognizes the voice even if it is, you know, a little bit quieter. Since I'm covering the animals, I want to shift this over to the effects of the movie. And I'll be honest here, I thought they were really good. I know they would film the normal sized things and then put our actors on a stage with items from that scene as props, but blowing them up to be much bigger, you know, with like styrofoam or whatever they were using to make these props. They would then superimpose them together and I'll be honest, it looks pretty seamless. It is shocking though that this movie's 80 years old at the time of writing and recording this review, to be honest. And what I was also kind of getting at there is I realized it might have been a little bit confusing, but when we have like Dr. Cyclops being, you know, much bigger than them, and then seeing these tiny people, that's the stuff I'm talking about being superimposed if I, you know, kind of messed up what I was saying. I just wanted to clarify. But the cinematography I'm going to lump in here as well as being really good, as this movie was in color, which is different from... A some of the things I have been watching for these little special segments. So that was kind of interesting to see that this was colored in with Technicolor. Now to shift over to the acting here, Deckard I thought was great as the megalomaniac Thorkel. He is bald and for my red, he actually has an imposing size and that helps him with his menacing look. On top of that, I just love that he's treating what he's doing as an experiment and since he's been playing God, it gives him a complex and it it's kind of creepy to hear him talking to these people that are his colleagues at one point and just treating them like they're nothing more than just, you know, lab rats. He does portray this villain very well, and he's one of the best parts of this aspect, if I'm going to be honest. I'd say that the rest of the cast we got was fine. No one really stood out, but they also weren't bad. There is a bit of a romance that's tacked on at the end of this movie. I don't really feel like we needed it. And the character that is involved with it, I think it's just kind of very lackluster this whole time and doesn't really add a whole lot to begin with. So I don't really feel like this really does much. It doesn't even need to really be there. It is just typical for the era for sure. I will admit, I did have a slight issue with how this ends and an explanation of how to reverse what is happening to them. I just don't feel like it would happen as quickly as it does in the movie. Now, it does say it was months later. It just doesn't feel all that natural, but it is an intriguing thing that they're doing with being small and something that is going to happen to them with their bodies and molecularly. So now with that said, this movie was better than I was expecting. It has an interesting parallel to the Odyssey, as well as dealing with the Cyclops. The movie also has an intriguing story to get them to South America and incorporating science fiction aspects to the movie worked for me. I'd say that the effects were quite amazing for the time and even today still impress me. Decker is one of the best of the bunch in this acting as he's such a great villain. I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. We have a low running time so I never got bored. The soundtrack really didn't stand out and it doesn't hurt the movie either. I'd say that this movie is above average in my opinion. I'll reiterate though, this is from 1940 so if that's a problem then I'd skip this. If not, this is a pretty solid little film that I don't really hear a lot about. So my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. And now before I end this out though, I did have a little bit of trivia that I wanted to share with you that I found. This is the first science fiction film to be shot in three color technicolor. Dr. Cyclops was Albert Decker's signature part and virtually all of his obituaries mentioned this film. It is also interesting though, is this actor was not really associated with the genre as he was selected for this role in part because of his bulky build, which does make a whole lot of sense. Alan Fox was the cab driver in the studio records and casting call list for that role, but he does not appear and was not identifiable in this movie, which is kind of interesting that he appears there. A lot of people believe that the director, Shodasak, 
who stood six foot six, was very aware of his status as a giant among men. So some of his colleagues believe that the era suggested for that filmmakers of this height might have been motivated, or at least unconsciously, his desire to approach a subject and his artistic endeavors. While many mad doctors were played by actors who were relatively modest in size, that's where it comes into the play that Decker was not, so it does seem like Shodasak was kind of envisioning somebody like himself in that role. This movie does look like it was part of 700 Paramount Productions from 29 to 49 that were in the MCA Universal distribution list and it does seem like turner classic movies does show this and has released it on dvd as part of the universal vault series and the last thing i had there was as well was luana walters was originally slated for the role of mary robinson she seemed to be a staple of films like this in the era but that is all i really wanted to share here so what i'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to the trailer for my second featured review which is going to be my 2020 release for this episode another grisly murder scene last Ooh, night. Wait, I want to hear that. The walls covered in satanic symbols. Another gruesome ritualistic murder claimed the lives of six people last night following a heavy metal concert that local religious groups were protesting. <laughs> this is supposed to scare other people, not us. So you ready for Soldiers of Satan? All right, let's go. <laughs> Here's to a night that we're going to remember for years to come. Here, here. <laughs> My brothers and sisters, the evil that is heavy metal rock music is unwavering in its goal to corrupt our children's souls. Girls, be careful now. There's a lot of evil out there. You don't think we can fend for ourselves? Boys, do you want to have a threesome with us? How many more children must die in Satan's name? Jesus, Mary and Joseph. It is not too late. Join me in this fight. Incinerate these demons and send them back to hell. Hey, I, I know you. I'm the wrath of God. Why are the police here? Good riddance. Welcome back. And on the second review here is going to be We Summon the Darkness. This is technically from 2019, but it got its release here in 2020. This is directed by Mark Mayers. This is written by Alan Trezza. This stars Alexandra Daddario, Kean Johnson, and Maddie Hassan. This is a comedy horror musical thriller from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 5.1 on IMDb and a 2.7 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being three best friends embark on a road trip to a heavy metal show where they bond with three aspiring musicians and head off to one of the girls' country home for an after party. Now this is a movie I was intrigued by when I heard podcasters talking about it. With the theaters being closed, I've been forced to search out 2020 horror releases to keep up with my goal for the year through streaming and VOD and things to that effect. And I also watched this one with Jamie as she thought this sounded pretty interesting as well. So to kind of get into this a little bit, we start this movie and we're in Indiana back in 1988. Inside of a car we have Alexis who is Daddario. 
with her two friends, Val, who is Hassan, and then Beverly, who is Amy Forsyth. They're on their way to a heavy metal concert. Val has issues with her bladder as she constantly needs to stop to use the bathroom. And then at a gas station, we get to see on the television a pastor, John Henry Butler, who is portrayed by Johnny Knoxville. He's a televangelist who is worried about heavy metal music and the youth that listen to it, thinking that it is corrupting them and that they need to get back into, you know, religion and start following Christ again. Now, once they're back on the road, we hear a news report on the radio about some ritualistic satanic murders that have been happening around the country. And this bothers Beverly, and she wants to change the station while Alexis is interested in hearing the report. But then things take a turn when a van passes them and throws something out of the window. It hits their hood and gets all over their windshield. Now they pull over and realize that all it is is a chocolate milkshake, but it still was pretty dangerous as they almost crashed. And then they end up getting back onto the road and continue their journey. But it turns out that this van that did that to them is also in the parking lot for the concert. The girls throw firecrackers inside of the window that is rolled down, and then this causes the group to reveal themselves. Now, they are a band that is in the process of breaking up because there's Mark, who is Kian Johnson, as he is going to be moving out to California. I think he wants to be a rock star out there, and he plays drums. But with him is Ivan, who is Austin Swift, and Kovacs, who is Logan Miller. They've been following the band that they're going to see that night for multiple stops of the show, but they're also doing a road trip to take Mark to California. Now, this really bothers Kovacs, though, that he feels like he is abandoning the group. Now, the guys do apologize to what they did to the girls, and then entice them to hang out with some of the beer that they have. And then after the show, Beverly is still pretty interested in Mark, and we see that there's a connection there. And... She invites, Alexis ends up inviting them all back to her house that is out in the country. The guys agree and they head out to the middle of nowhere. Now, they're out there drinking and partying, but things take a dark turn when the real plan is being revealed while they're hanging out. Now, this is where I wanted to leave the recap, as around this part is where we get the first major reveal. And I think it is something that should be experienced, so I don't want to spoil that for you. But I am going to have a spoiler section after I kind of go through what I thought about the rest of this movie. And then I will kind of delve into a little bit more of what I wanted to there. But I do think this movie has a really good setup. Giving us the introduction to Pastor John through a television report. And then the reports of the crimes over the car radio I think works really well. And we also kind of get a little bit about the characters, especially the women, during that little stretch. And then the movie's a bit cryptic before this reveal of who is what. In the fact that when the girls first meet the guys, they have a tabloid-type magazine in their vehicle that has a report on it about these crimes that are happening. And the girls comment about how creepy it is, and these guys have, you know, pentagrams on and stuff, and they look like they could be devil worshippers. And I think this works well not to play the movie's hand too early to what we end up getting. The movie, though, doesn't work as well as I really wanted it to go a different way. I think that, in part, is due to the writing of the characters. Their plan is interesting in a sick and sadistic way, and it does kind of make sense to me. But the more that we learn about it, the more it makes sense, but it ends up really bothering me as well. Jamie asked me some things while watching this and i said that this does kind of remind me of the spanish inquisition or the salem witch trials religion is being used as a way of justifying the means but then getting back to my point of bad writing when the characters reveal what their plan is i just don't think they would act the way that they do the choice of words didn't fit for me it really feels like they wanted either to do this in a comedic way or they wanted to show how insane they are regardless i just don't feel it is in line with the what they're trying to sell to me though for these characters now since i've been talking about the actor or about the characters themselves i might as well shift over to the acting 
Dodaro does a really good job here. I like the character that she's portraying as it is a role I really haven't seen her in and it's a different take on it to be honest. It really worked for me though and I'm glad to see her doing some of the things that she does. Hassan is another one that I thought was pretty fun as well. She's foul-mouthed from the start, and it just gets worse with her. I did find her to be quite attractive, as well as Daddario and Forsyth as well. I thought we did have an interesting cameo here with Johnny Knoxville, who I thought was fine. The rest of the cast was alright for what they needed, but they really didn't stand out to me. And there's honestly some subpar acting from some of the minor characters. One in particular, and I do feel bad about just calling her out, would be the role of Susan, who is Allison McAtee. Is her performance just wasn't great, and I was just kind of cringing a little bit from that. Going along with this, I did think the effects were pretty solid. We get practical ones for the most part. There was some, or if it was CGI, it was really good and I couldn't tell. The blood that we see looks pretty realistic and some of the attacks really worked for me. I do think some of them might be a little bit far-fetched. There is a weapon that is used during the middle stretch of this movie that I don't really know if it could be used as long as it is. I did give it some creativity though as it's not something you really get to see all that often. There are some issues where someone gets stabbed as well as some CGI fire. I just don't really feel like it's as realistic as possible there, and the CGI fire just doesn't look good at all. None of this really hurts the movie though, but just some of the things that did stick out to me. The cinematography I did think was pretty solid, and there are some pretty interesting camera angles for sure. One of which though is that we get this point of view where we see through Val's legs while she is bent over at the waist and looking you know, back at the camera. I don't know why, but for whatever reason I really dig dug seeing that. So now with that said, this movie was pretty solid in my opinion. It has some interesting setup here, and I like where they went with some of the reveals. This has a subject matter that really works for me where they're playing with the idea of religion, the corruption of it, and those that follow. This is a good runtime that kept me from getting bored, which is good. This is listed as a comedy, but we don't really get much of that to be honest. I think a lot of it is some of the situations end up being a little bit outrageous, and I think some of the language and some of the things they say, it did have me chuckling at points, but I don't really feel like this is all that comedic. There are some subtle things for sure. I do think we have some missteps with the word choice that really isn't in line with the reveal of the characters in my opinion. I did think the effects for the most part were really good. The soundtrack didn't really stand out, but it didn't. It did fit for me what was needed. I'd have to say this is an above average movie. Probably not going to be contender for me at the year end. So my rating here is going to be a 7 out of 10. Now what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to start a spoiler section here in a minute. I will have this time coded though. So if you don't want anything spoiled until you've seen the movie or if you don't care, then you can go ahead and just go right through. But if not, I will tell you where you can skip ahead as I, you know, close out the show after this. But that spoiler section will start now. Now, what we get here is that the movie, I think at first is trying to play with the idea of are these three musicians the Satanists or do we have these three girls? I like that after a game of Never Have I Ever, it is revealed that it is actually the women that are the villains here and they've drugged these guys. Now, it turns out that these ritualistic satanic murders that are happening around the country are actually done by Christians. But what the idea here is they are being led by Johnny Knoxville's character of the Pastor John. What he has is a group called Daughters of the Dawn, I think. And what they're doing are actually 
doing ritualistic murders around the country, trying to get people to go back to being religious. So it's almost doing like a reverse psychology and building fears so that they will turn back to religion. I actually really like this idea. That's where I get the idea that this is kind of like the Spanish Inquisition or like the Salem Witch Trials in that... We are using religion as a means to commit horrible, horrific crimes. But it also turns out, though, that Alexis is actually Pastor John's daughter. And we get to reveal things with Beverly that she is a runaway who was taken in by this church. But they're actually using her to, you know, commit these crimes here. And they really took advantage of her that at a time of need, they really influenced her to do these things because, you know, they're playing on the fact that she was in need of help and they gave it to her. So now she needs to reciprocate that, even though that's my problem with cults is that they take somebody who is in need or somebody who doesn't really have a whole lot and then making them almost feel guilty to kind of do these things like that. It makes me feel bad for her and I'm glad to see her stand up and kind of become a strong character here. But my problem, though, I like that we have these religious girls committing these crimes in these ways in order to cast blame away from them, but also to make people think that they need to go back to church and everything like that. My problem, though, is that they start swearing up a storm even after this reveal. I don't believe that. I think it'd be good for them to swear in the beginning of it because, you know, that's in line with these type of people that they're what we think they are. But once they're religious, I almost think it would have been funnier and a better play if they would have been censoring themselves, like instead of, you know, dropping an F-bomb being like, oh, fudge because it just feels out of place, but it's in more line with their characters. And I get they're probably trying to make them seem insane. I just don't believe it. It just doesn't fit for what they're trying to do for me. And I also read somewhere online that in the third act of this movie, they were supposed to be a little bit more grand than what we got. I feel like what we got there was fine. I didn't have any issues. What I did have an issue, though, is that the character of Susan is the stepmother for Alexis. And then she actually makes a comment that her divorce from Pastor John has just been finalized. I don't think she would come back to that house if they were divorced. It just kind of feels like they did do some rewrites of things. And they just didn't really think too much out of how they were making things play out. So I just wasn't a fan of that. It just didn't feel right and didn't make sense. And especially when Alexis and her are getting into it, I believe they would, especially knowing that they're divorced. It, it just not really a fan. Don't really feel like it works. Don't think it adds anything to it, except that it creates some issues as the cops get called from that point on. And I did like that they're also showing that some of these televangelist people are actually probably criminals. And I would actually call out a lot of these major ones right here and now that they probably are doing some shady things and just getting away with it. But we do see that Johnny Knoxville's character is stealing money and using these donations for things. Not necessarily what he's telling his followers that they're for. But that's really all I wanted to delve into here. I didn't want to spoil this for those who haven't seen it yet. But I really think that there was some interesting things to explore. And I had to, you know, do spoilers in order to do that. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
I want to thank you for listening to episode number 29 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Just to close the show out, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the reviews of anything on this episode or any of my past episodes, it's Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com, and there will be a link in the show notes to easily get there. If you want to add me on Facebook, it is David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, I'm David OSU. On Instagram, David OSU87. And if you want to join the Flick Chat app, you just have to download that on Android or iOS. And my join code on there is journey with a cinephile all one word also if you could rate or review depending on what podcatcher you're listening to this on just so i can kind of get an idea of what i'm doing that you like or what i'm doing that you don't like just so i can make this be the best show possible that would be greatly appreciated now for the next episode i'm not entirely sure what i'm going to do yet it might end up being since it is number 30 i might i've been asked on instagram from a buddy from high school to try a list type thing i might do that i'm not completely sure yet i'll come kind of figuring out what i want to do there regardless so i will continue my journey through the odds where i will watch a 1940s film as well as a 2020 release just not completely sure what i'm going to do though as what's going to be featured on that episode but i will have that all figured out by the time that goes down and i'm also doing something later today with somebody else to try to see if we might have a new venture there where you'll hear another voice i'm not sure anything about that completely yet kind of want to keep it a little bit secret as to what's going on completely but thought i would give a little bit of a teaser there and you know just in case things don't necessarily go as planned as well but i want to thank you for listening once again i hope whatever you do today is great and this is david garrett jr signing off